Good morning, Boker Tov. I want to thank our sponsors for the Living with Amuna series for this year, Dr. Zavi and Bella Morgan, who sponsor Lezecha Nishmas, Dr. Rabbi Dr. Brian Gaubet, Baruch Tzvi Ben Ruvay Nasan, who lived a life filled with Torah, Avodah Hashem, and Amuna is their sponsorship. I'll add that today is his Shloshim, so we particularly dedicate it in his memory. His uh, amazing Neshama Shadav and Aliyah. There's not a day that's gone by in these last 30 days that he has not uh, continued to inspire me personally, and I know so many others who each day ask themselves at some point during that day, what would Brian do? How would he react? So in that schus and the many more he has is Neshama Shadav and Aliyah. I also want to dedicate our learning this morning to those who gave their lives on 9-11 18 years ago. As we uh, begin our ordinary day today, we remember 18 years ago, which was anything but ordinary. And uh, I just mentioned in the Masil Sasharim class that um, how many people that day expected to go home that night or families expected their loved one and it didn't happen. Any day that at the end of the day we have the same head count in our home as we had at the beginning of the day is a miraculous day for which we should give such gratitude. And while 9-11 poses many theological questions, which we're not going to examine this morning, which all stem from the age-old question of why do bad things happen to good people, a question I have too much respect for you to try to unpack today, maybe any day, although someday we will try to examine it together. Um, I think on this reflective day of 9-11, we can focus either on the villains or on the heroes. And there were villains, evil, evil people, who perpetrated an atrocity, and uh, so many lives were lost, and so many more lives have forever been changed as a result. Uh, and we can and do focus on that, but we can and should also focus on the heroes. And um, I posted this morning that to me, what's etched into my memory is not 9-11 or 9-11 alone. It's 9-12, 9-13, 9-14, 9-15. And it's the reaction of a country that came together with unity and with love and respect, with pride in being Americans, with gratitude to uh, those who risked their lives to protect us. And the level of civility and derech and family that was felt is long a distant memory. And to me, the greatest memorial to 9-11 is not posting the nicest picture or writing the greatest quip. The greatest memorial to 9-11 is going back to that place of pride and unity and love and civility. And on 9-12, there was no such thing as a Democrat or a Republican. On 9-12, it didn't matter whether you were for or against immigration. On 9-12, all anyone felt was pride and the gift of being an American and the responsibility to help and care about a neighbor. And to me, the greatest memorial that we can offer is to try to recover and restore that to whatever degree that we can. That has nothing to do with living with Emuna, but it's just what's on my mind this morning. So I share it with you. Okay, now let's get to living with Emuna. We are still in our Sefer, the great collection of essays and talks of Revolber, of Shlomo Volba, the Mashkiach of Yerushalayim. And uh, we've been going through this essay where he's talking about Amuna, that if we work out and exercise our faith muscle, if we live with a deeper, more profound sense of faith in our lives, then not only does it have a religious impact, not only can we measure the results religiously, so to say, in our righteousness, but we can measure the results in our character. Living with Amuna has a positive transformational impact on our very character. And he got into that by quoting the great Kabbalists of Chaim Vital about the four elements in every person in humanity, that were made up of fire, wind, earth, and water. And each of those elements within ourselves, again, not necessarily anatomically or biologically, although with corollaries in those areas, but we're made up of those elements, and that when we're acting with anger, 
or with arrogance, or with jealousy, or with rage, or with, or with uh, gossiping, these are all symptoms. And what we've been developing is the notion that if we focus on the symptom, we haven't healed the illness. The illness is an imbalance. The illness is a corruption or a virus in the element within our system. And if we can identify and improve and work on that element in our system, then we will eliminate the symptoms rather than try to squash the symptoms and it expresses itself in a different way. So we began with the Yisod Ha'ish. We talked about the notion of the fire in our belly. person has fire, is passion, is energy, is enthusiasm. That can be channeled for good, it can be channeled for bad. If I ask you, is fire good or bad? The answer is yes. It's both. Fire is good. If it produces light and energy and warmth, it's great. If fire rages and consumes and destroys and harms and burns, then it's terrible. So the same is true with the fire in us. That passion, that enthusiasm that can be channeled towards good, could be harnessed in a productive way, or it expresses itself in rage. A person with a fire in their belly can fly off the handle, can get angry. So where does that fire come from inside us and how do we channel it? So he's been developing the idea that at its core, that fire inside us is our ego, is our ego. And if the ego is channeled to help others, then the ego is good. If the ego is inflamed, if the ego is, is, uh, is out of control and there's, nothing, there's no boundaries to it, then it's destructive to everything in its way. So we were talking about the angry person. It's that anger, that quality in us is self-destructive. How many business deals have been broken because someone flew off the handle? How much relationships have been harmed almost irreparably because somebody couldn't control their anger or their rage? How many bad decisions and poor judgment have we shown? Because in those moments, we were taken over by this animal impulse, by this anger, rather than our uniquely human divine spirit that enables us to have some self-awareness and regulate ourselves and make the right decision. Yesterday, I was dealing with a, a significant communal issue outside the shul, and I was with somebody who understandably, and I know where they were coming from, was very upset, was very emotional about it. And I said to them, I've learned so much from you about leadership, but one of the things I've learned is, aren't we supposed to try to make non-emotional decisions? Like, the path you're heading, it's gonna destroy a lot of things in its wake. There's gonna be a lot of casualties because it's coming from a place of emotion. How can we control the emotion to make a strategic decision to do what's right, even if it doesn't satisfy the, the anger we have at that moment? So what's at the core of all of that, Revolve has been talking about, is the ego, is the ego. So when we live our lives, when we wake up in the morning, when we're in any room on any given day, we can ask ourselves, do we work for him or does he work for us? Is the world supposed to conform and align itself to our expectations of it? Is everyone supposed to fall in line with what we demand? Or do we work for God? And we'll see what, uh, what God has in store for us. Because there's not enough room for both. Not because God is egotistical and he doesn't want to compete with us, but we gave the metaphor the last couple times about the person who steals the badge and the uniform from a policeman. It doesn't give you the power of being a policeman. A policeman's going to strip you of it and throw you in jail. That's a crime. It's a crime to try to imitate the power of an officer when you don't. And it's a crime to try to imitate the power of God when we don't have that power. We don't and can't control things. We take our initiative, we do our best, that's our responsibility, that's our obligation. We act and we work as if it all depends on us, but we accept that it all depends on Him. So when we try to imitate Him, we're an imposter, that's a crime also. And God says, I'm, it's you or me, what's the deal here? You wanna be in charge? You're, you're a counterfeit. You're an imposter, but go ahead, you're in charge. No problem, no problem. Or do you want to get out of the way and let me control things because I'm infinite, 
I'm omnipotent, I'm all-knowing, I'm all-good, and even if you don't understand it in this moment, and even if it feels unbearably painful as you're going through it, I have a more complete and broader picture of the universe. That's a big ask for us to submit when feel things are so painful, unbearably painful, so incomprehensible. It's a big ask to ask us to submit and trust Him and say He's in charge. But yet, what's the alternative to that? To con- think that we can maintain control when we can't? To think that we're just subject to random or chance or natural disaster? Does that make things better? Is that more comforting? I don't think so. So we're on the top of page Ayin Ches. On the top of page 78. Everyone see it? The top words, Rabbeinu Yonah Kosev. Yeah? Okay. Rabbeinu Yonah Kosev. Rabbeinu Yonah writes, and these are his words. Go down to footnote number five. Let's read his words inside. Footnote number five comes from Sharei Tshuva. In the month of Elul, many people learn Sharei Tshuva, which are the gates of repentance. Rabbeinu Yonah of Gerona lived in Italy when Spain was a great medieval commentary. So Rabbeinu Yonah has a work on character development, personal growth, called Shari Tshuva, The Gates of Repentance. And in it he writes the following quote, Says the, the uh, Rabbeinu Yonah, it's not just that arrogance causes you to make mistakes. Arrogance causes you to do sins. That's not the problem with arrogance. Arrogance itself is a sin. Let's say you're an arrogant person, but somehow you control that arrogance so it doesn't express itself in, in action which is wrong. What happens then? So says Rabbeinu Yonah, just being arrogant, just having that in your character, just having that inflated ego and sense of self is in itself a sin. Now here I draw your attention to what's the word the Torah uses to describe arrogance? An arrogant person is a to'eva. Well, gava means arrogance, but the Torah calls such a person a to'eva. What does the word to'eva mean? Abomination. Abomination. And why do I share that with you? Not to distract you, and not to confuse you or upset you, I mentioned yesterday in the Parsha class a similar idea. We often, and it's often invoked, that the Torah calls certain um, behaviors, not identities, this is a whole separate topic, but the Torah talks about certain behaviors and calls them a to'eva. So you'll see segments of the community that will rail against people who have a certain orientation and engage in certain relationships, and they'll say it's a to'eva, the Torah calls it a to'eva, we reject that. That is not our subject for today, I'm not talking about that. I bring that to your attention only because of the following, that the Torah does use the word to'eva in that context. You know what else it calls a to'eva? At the end of our parsha, it says somebody who's not honest in business. Somebody who cuts corners, who has dishonest weights and measures, is a to'eva. They're an abomination to God. You know what else he calls a to'eva? Somebody who's a balgaiva, somebody who's arrogant, is a to'eva. So if we're going to invoke that word and we're going to reject populations or feel entitled to judge, then we should do so equally and consistently. And the word to'eva is also used for people who are dishonest in business. They should be rejected and marginalized and eliminated. No one should ever be bullied. But if we're going to determine our attitude based on the use of the word to'eva, which has to be dealt with, the Torah uses that word, and we have to deal with it, and it formulates our thinking. It's the divine thinking on that issue. I'm not taking away from that whatsoever. All I'm saying is we can't invoke the word to'eva selectively when it's convenient for us. 
when it, when it supports an agenda that we have. Whatever segment of the community are dishonest in business need to be called out and need to be challenged and maybe marginalized. No one should be mistreated. But that too is a toeva. And so is a balgaiva. That's what Rabbeinu Yonah says. You're arrogant. You have a sense of ego. You think you're superior. You're better. You're greater. You think the world revolves around you. You think you call the shots. If you are a dictator in your home or in your business or in your life or in your nonprofit work, then that's a toeva. That's an abomination to God. That is the highest level of what's offensive to God. Because God says, I've gifted you your life. You know, could, could you imagine, and I dealt with last year a case like this, where somebody had a successful business and they had someone working for them and they taught them everything. And the person who had been working for them stole their Rolodex of clients, left, set up their own shop, and now became their competitor, having learned from them and taken their list and done everything. And ultimately they went to a Bayesden. But what was amazing is for the, for the victim, what I'm calling the victim, for the person who felt violated, the owner of the business, it wasn't about recovering the money. Thank God they're in a position that it wasn't about the money. You know what it was about? It was unbelievably hurtful and painful and offensive to them that I took you under my wing, I made you. You know what you know and you are who you are and you're in this business because I gave it all to you and that's what you did. You stole it, you took it out from under me and you take the credit for it, you put it in your name. So the feeling that that individual have is the feeling that we give God when we're arrogant. God says, I give you life and I made you. Everything you have, your talents, your wisdom, your skills, your circumstance, everything, your genetics, your DNA, your success, your achievement, your drive, everything in your life. I taught you. I took you under my wing. I mentored you. I gave you. I invested in you. I gifted you. And what do you do with all of it? You go set up shop and hang your own shingle and pretend that you're self-made and forget me and leave me out and don't give me credit and don't give me a return on the investment I've given in you. Is there a greater abomination to God? Is there anything more offensive to God? So the person who's a Balgaiva, that arrogance, to walk through life thinking, I'm in charge, I'm self-made, I'm in control, I call the shots, everything has to conform to the way I want it to be. That's arrogant, it's egotistical. I was talking to someone recently, it's a good thing I'm a rabbi, I wouldn't have stories, I would have nothing to say if I didn't, <laughs> I didn't have these stories. Somebody was going through a hard, challenging situation, who their life is filled with incredible bracha, by any measure, by any, however you'd look at it, life is filled with an enormous blessing, enormous blessing. Has a particular challenge, which is a real challenge. It's a real challenge, it's a particular challenge. But came to me and said, I don't believe in God anymore. You know, someone who davens three times a day, actual in minion, was a role model to me, watching the way he davens, everything he does. I'm going through this and I don't feel this God anymore and how could God do this? Me, I'm the one who stay, I come early, I stay extra, I say extra, I daven with kavana, and I'm going through this particular thing, I don't see him anymore. And I said to him, I said, let me ask you, have you been davening to God all along? Or were you davening because that's among the things on your checklist you need to do to get the results that you want? Because it sounds like you weren't actually davening to God, you just have a checklist. I gotta go to work and I gotta do this and I gotta do that. No, yeah, among the things, check, I gotta say my davening, I gotta do my prayers, because if I do my checklist, then I will get the results I want. Because the test is not, the, the relationship with God is not when everything goes well. It's very easy to have a relationship with God when everything goes well. When the blessing flows, when it comes easily, it's easy to see Him, to feel Him. Most people still forget Him, but to thank Him in that circumstance is not hard. 
Where the rubber meets the road, the test of our faith is, what happens when it's not working out the way you drew it up? What happens when it's not working out? And I'm not talking even enormous existential issues, which are such a challenge, such a challenge. The loss of a loved one, which is inexplicable, incomprehensible, which is unbearably painful. To say that that's not the way we drew it up, that's not our drawing it up. That's a fair expectation in life that you're not going to tragically bury young people. Parents won't bury children. That, that's not, I'm, I'm not addressing that. I don't feel, I'm not so presumptuous to address that. I'm talking about, and this particular person had what was a significant challenge, but a solvable challenge. Any challenge, by the way, which is solvable is a, is a challenge, but you'll take it. If it has a solution, it's already, because the challenges that have no solution, that are irreversible, that are conclusive, those are the challenges none of us would ever take in a, in a gazillion years. If your challenge already has a solution, you're way ahead in the game. And this person did have such a challenge. So I said, if you believe in God when everything's flowing, all those prayers are paying off because he's answering you the way you want when it's a yes, what happens when it's a no? So when you get a no, it's over? Can marriage, the first time your spouse says to you no, I want to go out for fleshics. No, I want milchiks. I'm calling the lawyer. It's off. I'm done. What do you mean no? I married you, so you always say yes. I married you because I want you to fall in line with everything I want. Do it the way I want. Everything has to happen the way I want. Only speak when I want you to speak. Only, only do the things I want you to do. Only come to the conclusions and decisions. I want you to feel about things the same way I feel about things. I want you to unconditionally green light me on everything I want to do. And the first time you say no, I'm out of here? That's not a relationship. And the relationship with God is the same way. If the first time God says no, and I'm not talking about a monumental thing, I'm talking about a relatively solvable thing. If the first time God says no, we're out of there, then were we ever in a relationship to begin with? A marriage in which you can't deal with the other person pushing back, you didn't really marry another person. You hired someone. You basically, you got, you got somebody who's working for you. Right? A marriage, a real relationship is where you're willing to be influenced by another, to learn from the other. You're willing to be pushed back. Right? <laughs> it's very important to have such a good relationship. Baruch Hashem. Ezer Kinegdo, the Torah says. Sometimes to be an Ezer, you have to be, you have to be Kinegdo. Sometimes. Baruch Hashem. You have to be willing to accept it. It's very important. Take influence. Very important to take influence. So anyway, so what's true in the realm of relationships and in marriage is true in our relationship with God. If you married God on condition He always says yes, you don't really marry God. You're just using Him. You're using Him to advance your agenda of what you want. So if you're out of there the moment He gives your first no, then what kind of relationship did you have to begin with? So all this is supporting this notion about being a Balgaiva, God says, you're arrogant. I've given you, I've, you're, I've made, you're everything. I gave you everything. Anything you have is because of me. And not only are you not even in a real relationship with me, you've, you've knocked me out of the equation. You dropped me. You've taken all the credit. You've moved on. That is a to'eva. That's an abomination. God doesn't have feelings. He's infinite and omnipotent and perfect. But we anthropomorphize God. We attribute human feelings because it's how we get to know him. So come back to what I told you, the person who owned that business who was so violated by the person he had trained and taught and made and invested in, who then broke off, stole his roll of decks, went into business and became a competitor. And that's how God feels when we do that to him. It's a to'eva, it's an abomination. So having an ego and being arrogant is not just a chait. You know I hate the word sin, but I'm gonna use it for now. It's not just a sin if it causes us to sin. 
Eden itself is a sin. To think about ourselves as superior, as better, as controlling the world, as taking credit when things happen, that in itself is the sin. And Einlos Yata Deshmai, go back upstairs now, back to the top paragraph. So Rabbeinu Yonah says, A Baal Gaiv is called a Tuev, an abomination. And Ga'avasom Marchiko Somi Aboris Baruch Einlos Yata Deshmai, that arrogance distances you from God. None of us like to hang out with arrogant people. They suck all the air out of the room. Every conversation revolves around them. Whatever topic comes up, they have to know the most. They have all the answers. They tell you everything you did wrong. Nobody wants to be around such a person. Nobody. Sometimes, unfortunately, their family has no choice. But those who have the choice make the choice. They don't want to be around such a person. So, ain't lo siyata deshmaya. God doesn't want to be around such a person either. We all want siyata deshmaya. We want divine providence. We want God to watch over us, to hold our hand, to guide us. That means that we need Him to be near us. Not really, he could do it from anywhere, but we want the feeling that he's near us. If we want Hashem to be near us, then are we living in, uh, in a way that he'd want to hang out with us? <laughs> Somebody who gets angry is also a distance from God. A person who gets angry, a person filled with rage, the natural tendency of a person who gets angry or filled with rage is to break ties with people around them. It's to alienate others. They break ties and they alienate people around them, human beings, physical people, and they alienate and they break ties with God. So God basically says the following. He says, if I'm in your life, your life will be so much better. God says, I control nature. I watch over the world. I answer blessings and prayers. If I'm in your life, your life will be better. But here's the deal. Here's the prerequisite. You want me to be in your life? Here's who I like to hang out with. I like to hang out with humble people who don't lose their cool. So stay humble and don't lose your cool and we'll be best of friends. You'll feel my presence in your life. It'll make a difference. But if you have an inflated ego sense of self, you're arrogant. If you fly off the handle and get angry easily, I'll be hanging out with somebody else. You're, you're going to struggle to try to find me and to feel me because I don't want to be around you. So we work on emuna by working on those character traits. And when we have greater emuna, it helps us overcome those character traits. So instead of working on anger or ego, which is breaking the habit, we've been quoting the Kutzker, when you break a bad habit, you have two bad habits. <laughs> you haven't solved the problem. You just created more of them. The goal is not to break the bad habit. The goal is to heal the illness. At the core of the illness is a lack of emuna. When I think I control the world, if I live with faith in Amun, I say there's something bigger than myself. There's a being who's in charge. There's a creator of the universe. I talk to him. I feel his presence. I'm invested in him. I have a relationship with him. When I do all those things, then as a natural result, I won't get angry because I'll say, you know what? Whatever comes my way, I can handle it. It's for a reason. It has a purpose. It may be painful. I may sit and cry, but I won't get angry about it. I won't get angry. I may be frustrated. It may be disappointing. Things are enormously disappointing. We're entitled to be disappointed and frustrated. We're entitled to feel grief and pain and cry. But anger is never a positive emotion. And if a person improves their amuna, if we live with faith, if we see him, we talk to him, we lean on him, we even protest him, then we won't ever get angry. And if we understand that we defer to him and we concede to him and we submit to him, if we're living with greater amuna, then we also won't have a great sense of, of an ego. We'll be humbled by what the world throws our way. And the way to battle, the way to fight these character traits is to strengthen our amuna. And how do we strengthen our amuna? 
through the process of tefillah, through davening. Every bracha of Shmona Esrei is a formula telling us, is a billboard saying, you're not independent, don't be proud and egotistical, you need God. God, I need you to have wisdom. I need you for intelligence. I need you to think well, good judgment. Rafaino, I need you to be healthy and to heal the people I care about. Barachaleno, I need you for my stocks to go up or for my parnasa to flow. And so on and so forth. Every bracha of the Amida, in fact, every bracha in life is an exercise in humility. It's why we say them. It's why we say them. Hasaba Mikam, the altar of Kelm writes, Hatfilahi avoda ve'esek be'amuna. Davening is not a mechanism or a formula for how to get what we want. If someone says to you, why do you daven? The answer is not, well, I have things I need and I got to go ask. If I don't ask, I don't get. And so I daven to ask so I can get. That's the wrong answer. It's also true, but it's the wrong answer. If someone says, why do you daven? The answer should be, that's like saying, why do I talk to my wife? Do I talk to my wife because I need things? Now it happens to be that every day there are things we need to talk about that we need from one another. We need to coordinate, that need to have happen. Of course we talk to each other because there are things we need to talk about. But that's not why, if someone says, why do you talk to your wife? Well, how else will I find out what's for dinner? <laughs> that's the wrong answer. That's the wrong answer. I didn't finish. That's the wrong answer. So misunderstood. That's the wrong answer. The right answer, if someone says, why do you talk to my wife, to your wife? If someone asks me, why do you talk to your wife? The answer I would give them is, because I love her, value her, want her input and her ideas and feedback. I want to connect and the way we connect is through communication. That is what I always answer. That is the right answer. That's what you should answer. So if someone says, why do you talk to God? It's not, I need to find out what's for dinner. Not, I need to find out if I'm getting a Parnassah tomorrow or not. Why do you talk to God? What do you mean? You have to communicate if you're in a relationship. I want him to know what's going on in my life. I want to hear him. Not literally, if you do. That's, that's a problem. But I want to hear him through the universe and through the messages of the universe where you can hear and feel his presence. So the altar of Kelm says, at the core, why do I daven? Because it's how I work on my amuna. Why do I talk to my spouse? Because that's the foundation of a relationship. I talk to my spouse because I'm invested in a relationship. It's not transactional. It's not because I have things I need. It's because I want to be in a relationship. Why do I talk to Hashem? What do you mean? What kind of relationship would you have if you don't communicate? So much of marriage counseling and therapy revolves around strengthening and improving or fixing or introducing communication. And the same is true in our relationship with Hashem. Here's what the author of Kelm writes. We're communicating in that communication. We also realize our dependence and reliance on Him. So someone who davens authentically and genuinely, if three times a day you stand before your Creator and you say, I love you, I want a relationship with you, I want you to hear what's going on in my life, I want you to speak to me, send me messages through the universe. And also, by the way, God, let me give you a list of things that I need that I can't do without you. I need you. By the way, it does help a relationship when you say to your spouse, not here is a to-do list, but here are things I can't do without you. When you feel needed and wanted by the other, that, that enriches a relationship. So if it's transactional, the other person is lazy, you're taking care of it for them, you're doing it because they've made you feel you owe them, that's a yucky feeling. But if they're asking for your help on something because they feel inadequate, 
or they feel dependent on you for it, that's a good feeling. That's a good feeling in the relationship. So when we tell Hashem, I depend on you, I need you, I rely on you, that's a positive, that's a positive feeling. And that itself grows our sense of amuna. And the more amuna you have, the less gaiva you have. There's a directly proportional relationship to amuna, to faith, and to arrogance. The more faith you have in God, the less arrogant you'll be. The more you realize you're not in control, you're not in charge, any of the gifts that you have, they're on loan, they're not part of your permanent collection. The more faith you have, the less arrogance you have. But the inverse is true. The more arrogant you are, the more you're gonna struggle with faith in God. The more you think you're in charge, you're in control, you're proud of your achievements, everyone needs to conform to what you want. So everyone's gonna include on that list, God has to conform too. The more you're gonna struggle with having emuna. So what's our avoda? I wanna share this with you. I saw, I happened to see this morning, that one year, the mashkiach, Rav Dov Yafa, sent a letter, sent his son, to ask Rav Shlomo Zaman Arbach. Rav Shlomo Zaman Arbach was the great posik, the 20th century, lived in Shari Chesed in Yerushalayim. Shlomo Zaman was, I, I met him a couple times. I had the privilege of davening in the shul, in the gra, in Shari Chesed, and he was there. And just to be in his presence, just to be in a room with him, is to be in the presence of greatness. In old Yerushalmi Yid, he was a Rosh Hashiva at Kol Torah in Yerushalayim, he gave a shir, but he was relatively anonymous until people started asking him questions and they realized he was, he was a gentle giant, a brilliant encyclopedic mind and a decisor of halacha, of authority. At his funeral, hundreds of thousands of people came from the entire cross-section of Israeli society, from the non-religious to the, they call the ultra-religious and everyone in between. And why did the entire cross-section of society? Because they each felt Rosh Lama Zaman belonged to them. They found in him love and empathy and acceptance and warmth. It was an unusual person, an extraordinary posik, a very, very special person, a very special person. So Rav Shlomo Zaman, so he sent his son to Rav Shlomo Zaman to ask him, What should I work on in Elul? That's what he asked Rav Shlomo Zaman. It's the month of Elul. This is it. This is tax season for the Jew. This is when we're pushing hard. We're pushing hard. And uh, I have to write my article this week. I think I'm going to write about if anyone's ever done what they call a HIT workout, H-I-I-T, which is High Intensity Interval Training. So that's what I'm gonna write about. Elul is our spiritual version of High Intensity Interval Training. So he asked Rav Shlomo Zalman, while I'm doing this intense training for the month of Elul, what should I take upon myself? What should be the thing I work on? I saw this and I immediately thought of all of you, because this is what we've studied so much together this past year. Hey, Shiv Lagon Rav Shlomo Zalman. Rav Shlomo Zalman answered, quote, I can't tell you. This tells you everything about Rav Zaman. He said, I can't tell you what to work on. You could do that. I'll tell you what I'm working on. Right? That alone, before they get to the rest of the answer, that alone tells you Rav Zaman, his greatness. I'll tell you what I'm working on in this month of Elul. What I'm working on is to make the hundred brachas a day and to do it with mindfulness. Right, we've talked about, we have an obligation to make 100 brachas a day. And our dear friend sent us those cards with the, I forgot to bring more, I still have more of them, with a paper clip to count our 100 brachas a day. And if you add up the Shemona Esrays, and you add up the davening, and you add up the brachas on food, and benching, and ashayatars, you're really almost there. So we're saying 100 brachas a day. So Shlomo Zaman said, you know what I'm working on? 
that I have kavana, that I have mindfulness when I say my hundred brachas a day. Because Chazal, our rabbi, said in the Pasuk, What does God ask of you, Kim Li'ira? Just to have an awe of him. Don't, don't read it as ma, what does God ask? But meya, what God asks from us is a hundred brachas a day. And why? Kim Li'ira. God says, if you're going to have an awareness of my presence, the best way that you'll have an awareness of my presence is if you remember me a hundred times a day. So Shlomo Zaman said, you know, what he took upon himself is not, I'm finishing Shas, I'm never speaking Lashon. He didn't take upon some grandiose thing. He said, I have to make a hundred brachas a day. You know what? I'm going to try to pay attention in my Shahakal. I'm going to try to pay attention to my benching. I'm going to try to pay attention when I say my Asher Yatzar. And why did he say that? So listen to this explanation. This blew me away. Because when we come to Hashem on Rosh Hashanah, just a short time, too short a time from now, we're going to come to Hashem on Rosh Hashanah, we blow the shofar. Why are we blowing the shofar? So there's different imagery that we have. The Vilna Gon endorsed the idea that we're blowing the shofar because we are at the coronation ceremony, coronating God, the King of Kings. Each year we renew, we re-elect God. Now does God need us to elect Him? Yes. The Gemara tells us that God says yes. Ein melech am. There can't be a king without a nation. If I stand up today and declare myself the king of the Montoya Circle, if you're not elected by people, if you're not accepted by people, you cannot force your will upon people. You can't be a king without a people. How do we coronate God and renew our, re-elect Him every year, re-accept Him every year? That's what Rosh Hashanah is all about. Uh, now's not the time either, but Rosh Hashanah, there's no judgment on Rosh Hashanah. The judgment happens, and why, Salaam Rebbe explains, when we coronate God and elect God, God says, hmm, you just made me king again? Let me review my kingdom and see what deserves to be kept and what's run out of time. And that's when we spend the next 10 days, the Aseris Yimei saying, I deserve, making the argument why I deserve to remain part of your kingdom. And Yom Kippur, he makes his decision. So Rosh Hashanah, we think of as a day of judgment. It's not a day of judgment. It is a happy, joyous, celebratory coronation day for God. And the Vilna Gon and Maisa Rav, it's quoted that that's what he would think about when the shofar was blown. They're the trumpets at the coronation ceremony. I'm listening to the trumpets announcing the new king. He's been re-elected, reinstalled. It is a coronation of the king. So the Gemara's language is, God says, the Musaf of Rosh Hashanah has three sections to it. The first one is Malchius, kingship. And God says, Imru lafanai Malchios, kedeshatam lichuni aleichem. Recite Malchios before me so that I can be your king. Re-elect me. Reinstall me, recoronate me. How do we coronate God? By reading that section of Malchus. So said of Shlomo Zaman Arbach, what's in every single bracha that we say? Barachata Hashem Elokeinu Melech HaOlam. He said, for the month of Elul, I get ready to coronate God by going through the election campaign. I spend that month, for one month, really thinking about every time I say the words Melech HaOlam. When I make my hundred brachas a day, I think, he's the king of the universe. He's the king of kings. He is in charge. He is in control. I need him. I rely on him. I lean on him. I protest to him. But he's in charge. He's the melech ha'olam. He is the king of kings. So when the young man asks Rosh Hashanah, what do you work on in the month of Elul? Rosh Hashanah's answer is, I can't tell you what to work on. I'll tell you what I'm working on. I'm trying to pay attention when I make a bracha. I love that story. Because Rosh Hashanah, who was the greatest of his generation, what was he working on? What all of us need to work on. And he wasn't afraid to admit it. I'm working on paying attention when I make a bracha. I'm working on focusing on the words, Melech HaOlam, that God is the king of the entire universe. That when I make that shahakol niyabidvaro, when I make that bracha on that cup of coffee, I say, wow, you're the king of the universe. You invented the coffee bean. 
and you made farmers, and you made those who were able to harvest it, and it got packaged and shipped, and it got distributed, and I'm living in a time that there's such a thing as a Kerrig machine. What a miracle. What a miraculous time. I don't have to suffer with that instant coffee. I don't have to crush my own beans. I have all kinds of, and the coffee snobs can all have all their debate. Nespresso, Kerrig, Starbucks, Dunkin' Donuts. I'll leave that to the coffee snobs to debate, which is the highest level. But the fact that we can have that debate about how I can have luxury coffee at my fingertips every morning, which flavor do I want of the million and one flavors that, that I have a choice? Last night we gave a talk on essentialism. It's online if you want to listen to it. And we talked about how to reduce and consolidate our lives to what's essential. We'll live our best lives if we do that. And I, I introduced it. I was talking about the decision fatigue, the tyranny of choice that we're living in. The tyranny of choice and decision fatigue. The supermarket, average supermarket has 42,000 products. Half of that's just salad dressings. <laughs> the decision fatigue. Every morning, what to wear, what to say, where to go. So I, I jokingly said among the decision fatigue is which flavor coffee pod should I put in my character? Before you've begun your day, before the cup of coffee helped you open your eyes, you've had to make a thousand decisions. Talk about decision fatigue. So how do we live an essentialist life in a world of, in a world of decision fatigue? So on the one hand, that's a challenge. On the other hand, what a blessing. What a blessed time that we're living in to have decision fatigue. Peter Drucker, the great management guru, says that our generation is the first that we've had to learn to manage these choices. Because in antiquity, there were no choices. Do you think our ancestors had a thousand decisions to make? <laughs> Here was one decision. How do I avoid being killed in a pogrom? Right? How do I work my farm so I have food to eat for dinner? That was the decision. Yeah. You think they had a thousand decisions to make? What a blessing that we have a thousand decisions to make. That first of all, we're not avoiding a pogrom, and second of all, that we have an infinite amount of coffee-flavored pods to choose from. What a blessing to have decision fatigue. What a, what a blessing to be suffering from the tyranny of choice, that that's the tyranny that we're under. What a blessing that we have. What a blessing that we have. And so, and so when I make that bracha on that cup of coffee, Shaq, on Abedvaro, I'm making a bracha on the tyranny of choice. I'm making a bracha on my Kerrig machine, my Nespresso machine, Starbucks, Grande, uh, I don't even know what these things are called. I'm making a bracha on the choice. Wow, that's unbelievable. So Shlomo Zaman, what did he work on? And this is your homework assignment. What we are going to work on together as a group, as a team, for uh, the next period of time to Rosh Hashanah and beyond, is that the hundred brachas a day, we're paying attention when we say them. And which part of the bracha in particular? The words Melech HaOlam. That when we come to Rosh Hashanah and we say, God, I'm coronating you, I'm being Mamlech you, I've been doing it for a month. It's easy. I've been campaigning for you for a month. So now I'm at your inaugural ball, I deserve to be there. I've been on your campaign team for a month. We're going to be on God's campaign team. Melech HaOlam, he's the king of kings. We're going to focus on those words and with it bring great blessing to our lives. Have a great day.